So our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. It's on page 1126 of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, and so if you're able to turn there, you can follow along as I read. We're completing this morning our study of the last days of Jesus' life here on earth, and we're going to to read just these last four verses from the Gospel of Luke. So let me, let me invite you to stand if you're able. Take your time. It's only four verses that I'll be reading, so it'll take you as long to stand and sit down as it will for me to, to read them. Everybody set? All right. This is Luke 24, verse 50 to 53. And he, that is Jesus, led them, that is his disciples, and he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of the things that that always makes me smile as as a pastor is when I hear someone say something like, when was the last time you heard a sermon about? And usually it's because they have a particular idea of what they would like a sermon to be about and they haven't heard that in a long time. And it makes me smile because if I... If I made a list of all the things that someone somewhere would like me to preach a sermon about, it would take me several lifetimes and all the sermons that you could possibly think of to hit everything that someone somewhere would like me to to preach. And yet that doesn't mean that there aren't some doctrines, some topics that we probably collectively as a church don't talk about enough, about how important they are. One of those doctrines that may fit into this category is the uh, the ascension of Jesus, the so-called ascension of Jesus. And so and so this is wonderful. Here we, here we are in the last chapter of Luke, and the ascension of Jesus is what, we, is what we come to. So if this week some cranky Christian comes up to you and says, you know, we hear a lot of sermons about the birth of Jesus and a lot of sermons about the resurrection of Jesus, but when was the last time you heard a sermon about the ascension of Jesus? You can look at them and say, well, actually, just last Sunday. That's what you can say. Now, that's actually, that's, that's, that's actually a very bad reason for you to keep listening because most of you are not probably particularly interested in checking the boxes and completing the list of theological topics you've heard sermons about, and you really shouldn't be. That shouldn't be your, your main interest. You really need a better reason to keep, to keep listening. So let me try to give you one. First, we should, probably, we should probably start off by defining what we mean by ascension. And what does that, what does that even mean when we say the ascension of Jesus? Phil Riken uh, a, uh, a former pastor and now a seminary pre- or a uh, college president is helpful here. He says that the ascension is the glorious elevation of Jesus Christ, his visible departure from earth and triumphant return to heaven, from which he will return on the last of all days to judge the world. Now, that's a long kind of definition, but that phrase, the glorious elevation of Jesus Christ, that's a good way to put it. And we're not necessarily, or at least simply, talking about a physical elevation here, right? That may be a part of it. We'll talk about that in a little bit, right? But we're talking about the elevation of Jesus to the throne of heaven, his, his enthronement, if you will. At Charles Wesley, the great English theologian and hymn writer of the 1700s, the one who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? he also wrote a 10 stanza poem about the ascension that became one of his more famous hymns. We're going to sing it at the end of the the service today. It's about the ascension. And it starts like this. It says, Hail the day that sees him rise to the throne above the skies. 
Okay, you say, I'm still not caring a whole lot about what you're saying by quoting an old Charles Wesley hymn. All right, hold on. This is, when, when this is happening, right, if Jesus is ascending to his throne, right, what does that mean? What are the, in fact, look, what is, what is the first thing that his disciples do, right? We, we only read four verses, right? What was the first thing that they do? Verse 52, they worshiped him. Right? In other words, as the king takes his throne, they pledge their allegiance to him. How many people set their alarm for 5 a.m. yesterday morning to watch the, the coronation of King Charles III? Right? How many? Right? One, right, two, couple. Right? Not me. But I did, I, I did watch a little bit later. It is interesting. As much as in some ways it's a, it's a little bit watered down, some of the Christian language from the the older traditional uh, British coronation ceremony, it still has a lot of elements to it that are very fascinating from a Christian perspective. In fact, if it, as I was watching, everyone yesterday in Westminster Abbey and everyone who wanted to well, watching was invited together to, to, to say together that they swear allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors on the, according to law. And they, would say, and they said, so help me God. And then there was the fanfare and all the trumpets blew. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the, the Church of England, proclaimed, God save the king. And everyone responded to that by saying, God save King Charles, long live King Charles, may the king live forever. Now, British monarchy aside, the ascension is telling us that we actually do have a king who is living forever and will reign forever, and this king has been installed on his throne. And if that's true, then it's not a theological box for you to check. You ought, actually ought to care about what that means because there is a king on his throne claiming authority over you, and you should probably get to know a little bit about what that means. Now, the other reason to care about the ascension is that it offers all of us something that is, that is really hard to find today, almost impossible, I would say, anything, anywhere in our world today. The implications of the ascension, the so-called so what of the ascension, the benefits of the ascension are found in understanding what Luke is telling us here happened. And that's really, you know, the thesis statement, I guess, if you will, this morning, the summary statement that I put in the bulletin. The triumphant return of Jesus to heaven, his ascension, leaves his followers with a sense of completion, anticipation, and contentment. Anybody want those things? Right? Who wouldn't want those things? A sense of completion, a sense of anticipation, a sense of contentment. Only Jesus can give you those things, and his ascension is a great way to see how. So let's take a few minutes and let me show you how. First, let's talk about completion. Go back to, to Luke 24 and look at verse 50. Jesus has been with his disciples for 40 days. Luke tells us that in Acts chapter 1. And it says now in verse 50 that Jesus leads his disciples out to Bethany, about two miles east of of Jerusalem, and it was the hometown of Jesus's close friends, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. They might very likely have been with him there, and so there's this sense of sentimentality. This is a this is a key place in his in his ministry, and and so this is this is a this is a real moment. Jesus is wrapping up his 40-day master class and teaching them about who he is and what the scriptures said about him. And and what does it say that he does? It says, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now, we think we know what that means, right? That Jesus gave sort of a final word of, uh, of encouragement, kind of a, you know, a pep talk before you send the team out onto the field to, 
to play. A few words that would be kind of fitting for the, uh, the occasion. But there's more going on than that. Because Jesus is being very intentional about doing what he does here. And Luke is being very intentional about telling us what he does here. Because someone from a Jewish background would have understood the significance of the pronouncement of a blessing upon God's people. If you go all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 6, one of the first five books of the Bible, you'll find that probably the most famous blessing in the Bible. It's called the Aaronic Blessing. Right? Because Aaron was the, the brother of Moses and the first high priest of, of Israel. And after God used Moses to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt, he put into place a ceremonial law that would govern the religious practice of the people. And in Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 22, this is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and here's the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Beautiful, right? It is. It's beautiful. Right? These are the words of the high priest, the one who stood as the, as the mediator between God and his people. The words that he was to pronounce upon the people, a blessing of God's favor and a promise of God's presence. But there's even more to it. Because the blessing came at a pretty high price. In other words, the high priest couldn't just throw out the blessing unconditionally. Just, you know, just toss it out there anytime he felt like it. In the book of Leviticus, when God is setting up this whole religious ceremonial law, before he consecrates Aaron as the, as the high priest, he goes through several chapters in the book of Leviticus, several chapters worth of explaining how the animal sacrifices were to work, these animal sacrifices that were required to atone for the sins of the people. In other words, they couldn't just be in God's presence. They couldn't have God's face shine upon them because of their rebellion against God and their rebellion against His authority. Right? Now, we're in the same spot, by the way. I'm not trying to hide the, applic the application here. We have the same problem. Unless atonement is made, there is no blessing for us. So Leviticus 6 and 7, they go through a whole lot of detail about how, the, how they were to present the sacrifices, how they were to make the sacrifices, the offerings for the guilt of the people. And then Leviticus 8 and 9 explains how God set aside Aaron as the high priest and how Aaron performs and presents the sacrifices exactly as God had laid out that he was to do. He does it all just as God commanded, all this blood, all this sacrifice. And then in chapter 9 of Leviticus, verse 22, after Aaron was done, it says, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. The very last thing he does before leaving his post and before, after performing his priestly function and offering sacrifices for the guilt of his people, the very last thing he does is lift up his hands toward the people and he blesses them. Why? Because the sacrifices have been accepted. The guilt of the people is now wiped away, forgiven, because the capital punishment fitting the crime has been taken by someone or something that has stood in the place, blood for the blood of another. And then the Lord's face shine upon the people. The blessing happens, in other words, on the other side of the blood. Can you remember that? The blessing happens on the other side of the blood. Now, return to Luke 24. The very last thing that Jesus does before he leaves his post and completes his work, having not just offered up the final atoning sacrifice 
right? But himself as the final atoning sacrifice, not the blood of animals, which at best is only symbolic, but his own blood. After that, after all that, the very last thing that Jesus does before he leaves his post and completes his work is what? Luke 24, 50, lifting up his hands, he blesses them. The work is complete. Your sin is forgiven if you've put your trust in Jesus. And the blessing of God, the light of his glorious presence, shines upon you. And they don't just hear the words of Jesus with their ears. They see the Lord himself, the face of the Lord Jesus looking down upon them. Back to Wesley's song. He has conquered death and sin. Take the king of glory in. See he lifts his hands above. See he shows his prince of love. Hark his gracious lips bestow blessings on the church, his church below. The ascension gives us a sense of completion. That's point number one. Now, it also gives us a sense of anticipation. It says that in verse 51, that while Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Carried up. Now, this is where we get this idea of ascension, going up. Now, I don't want you to think that this is necessarily saying that heaven is up in some directional sense. That can lead to all kinds of misunderstandings. For example, in 1961, the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man ever to to go into space and orbit the earth. And the famous line, there's no proof that he actually said this or believed this, but the the famous line that the Soviet propaganda machine put into his mouth was, I went up to space, but I didn't see God there. Now, Luke may be telling us Right? as Jesus was taken into, his heaven, uh, t- taken into heaven, that his body was physically lifted from the ground in some sense. That, that may, be what it, may be what it happened, but it wasn't lifted up in the sense that he was you know, going to be an astronaut or that he was going to go live on some cloud in the, you know, in the, physical, in the physical sky. Right? He didn't just disappear, Jesus. He didn't just vanish this time like he did when he was having dinner in Emmaus. This time, his parting was visible so everyone could see. See what? What were they looking for? What did they see? What did they get to see when he was lifted up in front of them? They got to see him carried up into heaven. Now, we know his physical body is somewhere, but as J.C. Ryle said, it would be unprofitable speculation for us to worry about, physically speaking, where his body is, because even the wisest theologian isn't going to be able to give you an answer to that. Far more important is to know that Jesus is with his Father, and he's there in a state of glory. That's what heaven is, to be in the presence of God in a state of glory. And that's where Jesus is. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and remember, Acts is Luke's sequel to what he writes in the Gospel of Luke. And Acts chapter 1 actually sort of overlaps. You know how like when you do a sequel sometimes, you know, you, you go backwards a little bit at the beginning of the, of the movie and kind of give a running start, like, you know, last scene in, you know, right? That's, that's what Luke does. He kind of goes back. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says that when Jesus was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud. Now, this is probably not like a cloud car or whatever the first century equivalent would have been, a cloud chariot or something, I guess, right? It's not, it's not like that. But neither is it just sort of some random, like, image that's being thrown out there. Again, sorry to take you back to Leviticus again, but if you go back to Leviticus chapter 9, right after the sacrifices are accepted and right after the high priest pronounces the blessing, right, the blessing after the blood, this is what it says, Leviticus 9, 23. 
Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. They do it again. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Right? So you have sacrifices, blessing, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Now, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, what is the physical representation of God's presence with His people in glory? What is the, what is the, the physical representation of that that is most often used? It's a cloud. A cloud. When God led the people out of slavery in Egypt, His glory took the form of a pillar of fire, a, a pillar of fire at night, but during the day, it was a pillar of cloud. When the temple was dedicated by King Solomon, we looked at this last March in 1 Kings 8, the priest carried the ark, the symbolic throne of God, into the temple, and they're offering sacrifices all along the way, lots of sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people, and they put the ark in the most holy place in the center of the temple, the very inner sanctuary, and it says, 1 Kings 8, verses 10 to 11, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, right? It's a parallelism, right? A cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, right? That's what is being talked about here. That's what this cloud is about in Luke's account of the ascension when he tells the story in Acts. Jesus has entered into the glorious presence of God, and here's what that means. Here's why this should fill us with anticipation, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 that when he, is, when he will go in, when he's going to go into the glorious presence of God, he's not going so that he can kick back and enjoy some hard-earned vacation after a very stressful 33 years here on earth. Right? He's not going to some you know, heaven equivalent of a posh retirement resort in Florida where you can play golf every day and twice on Saturday. That's not why he's going. He's going on a mission to prepare a place for those who are going to come and join him. The very first few, few verses of John 14 are some of the most comforting words to come out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, they're often quoted at, these, these words are often quoted at funerals, and there's good reason for that. This is what Jesus said. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, there's the good news. Jesus isn't done being our representative. He didn't just live a perfect life as our representative. He did, but there's more. He didn't just die a perfect sacrificial death as our representative. He did, but there's more. He's gone into glory as our representative to prepare a place for us. He's our, 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 our forerunner, our, the advance man. Right? Everywhere the President of the United States goes, or the King of England, I suppose, since we've been talking about him, right? an advance team goes first to scope things out, to make the necessary arrangements, to get everything ready for his arrival. It's ironic in a sense because Jesus is actually the one who's the president or the king, but he's still, isn't this, isn't this awesome? He's still the servant king. Still, in a sense, the king with the basin and the towel serving his, his disciples. He's gone ahead of us as our representative, taking possession of the glorious inheritance that has been promised to us and holding it as a trustee until we too are taken up into glory. That's what we're anticipating. That's where we're looking beyond this mortal moment to eternity. Here's Wesley again. Lord, beyond our mortal sight, raise our hearts to reach thy height. 
There thy face, unclouded sea, find our heaven of heavens in thee. So the ascension of Jesus, it gives us a sense, one, of completion, right? Two, a sense of anticipation. And finally, a sense of contentment. Go back to Luke 24. Look at verses 52 and 53. Jesus leaves them, and what do they do? Right? They worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, that should be at least a little surprising, as we hear that said. Right? Because I'm sure you'd understand that the disciples at this point, they might not be depressed and despairing like they were after Jesus' death in the same way then. But you'd at least expect, at least I'd expect, a little bit of, I don't know, a sense of sentimental solemnity. At least a little bit of, you know, of sadness. You know, sad but happy kind of feelings about what was going on. You know, after a great vacation, you go on a great vacation or you have special time with someone you care about. Graduations are like that. Right? We're about to get into graduation season, right? They, they shouldn't be occasions of despair, but they're almost always kind of mixed with a little bit of sadness. I remember when I graduated from high school, again, from, from college, right? But you have people who are such a large part of your life, many of whom I suspected, and I was right, I would never really see again. Right? You're not weeping and wailing, but there's a little bit of nostalgia kind of mixed in with it. But you don't get that sense from Luke here at all, that there's any of that kind of reaction from the disciples as Jesus leaves them. They weren't sad that he was going away. They were almost acting as if, well, as if he wasn't. And in a very real sense, that is what was happening. We're going to go the next couple of weeks into the first chapter of Acts, right? We're going to dip our toe into the, into the sequel. And so we'll talk in a couple of weeks about the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is teaching, especially in, in John 14 and John 16, about what it would mean for him to go away to the Father was, was always explained in an extremely positive way. He always made it seem, as good as his physical presence with his disciples was during his earthly ministry, he always made it seem that it would be, that it was going to be even better when the Holy Spirit came. And that is a very important truth. Jesus' ascension means that his disciples were going to get, listen to this, more of his presence, not less of his presence. That seems like it doesn't make any sense, does it? But it actually does. When he was still on earth, Jesus could only be with his disciples wherever he was physically at that moment. Right? In, in other words, he couldn't be encouraging John over by the fire if he was also at the same time with Peter under the tree. He couldn't be in both places at the, at the same time. But through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is actually able to be truly present with his people, all his people, everywhere at the same time. Now, I know that's a, that's a mind bender, right, how that can happen, but that's what he said. Jesus wasn't lying when he told his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, the very last verse of Matthew's gospel, when he said to them, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it seems like that finally clicked for the disciples, because they finally understand what Jesus is talking about. And so a sense of, of contentment, a sense of joy, excitement even, is the primary emotion that they're feeling. They got it. They finally got it. That's what a right understanding of the ascension does. Another guy who got it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right? Kids, you, never, you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, um, a faithful Christian pastor during the time when Adolf Hitler was in power in Germany in the 1930s and early 1940s. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor who was actually speaking out against the Nazis, 
against the evil of what Hitler was doing, and it ultimately landed him in prison. In April of 1943, he was imprisoned. Right? That's exactly 80 years ago. Right? right around Easter, 80 years ago. Well, on June 3rd, 1943, just a couple months after his, about 40 days or so after his imprisonment, Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to his parents. I think it was his parents, but it was a letter that he wrote that said, listen to this, today is Ascension Day, June 3rd, 1943. Today is Ascension Day, and that means that it is a day of great joy for all who believe that Christ rules the world and our lives. Now, that's a nice thought. Good quote for a sermon on the Ascension, right? You should write that down, Tom. Use that when you come to the Ascension. Right? But remember the source of that quote, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a Nazi prison in 1943. Some of the darkest days of the Second World War. The sounds of death and suffering literally around him all the time. And he says, what a day of great joy. Now, how in the world can he say that? Only if the Jesus who had promised to be with his disciples to the very end of the age was the same Jesus who had said in just the breath before that, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Only if the Jesus who had gone into glory could be trusted to use that authority well. Only if the promise could be trusted that our eternal inheritance of glory would be guaranteed by his faithful stewardship. Bonhoeffer got it. You get it? Do you get it? I'm not trying to be simplistic in, you know, in an answer to life's problems, insensitive to real pain in our, in our lives. Bonhoeffer wasn't crazy, though. He wasn't delusional. Neither were the disciples. Their joy, didn't, it didn't wipe out the sufferings or the struggles of their circumstances, but it transcended them because they were trusting in the truth of the ascension. And our failure to live with joy in this life, at least in some level and in some way, can always be traced if you press it down far enough, it can always be traced to a failure to truly understand and truly believe at that moment the truth of the ascension. I'm not saying this just for you. I'm saying this, this for me, right? If we got it, if I got it all the time, then I would simultaneously be the most realistic about the brokenness of the world around us, but the most hopeful and the most joyful about the certainty that the brokenness of this world will be perfectly fixed. Now, where does that leave us? Where does it, where does it leave us, the disciples of, of Jesus? Well, it leaves, us, it leaves us right here. We gather regularly in the presence of God with the people of God, rehearsing the promises of God for the glory of God. Right? That's what we're doing. That's where Luke ends his gospel. With the people of God gathered in the presence of God, rehearsing the promises of God for the glory of God. Luke ends the gospel where he began with public worship in the temple. That's where he started in chapter 1 in the temple. This priest named Zechariah was going through the motions of temple worship, completely unaware of where it was all leading and to whom it was all pointing, right? whose mouth, Zechariah, whose mouth was, interestingly enough, was shut so that when he left the altar after offering the, the incense, his mouth was shut so that when he leaves the altar, he can't pronounce the blessing because his mouth was shut. That's where it begins in the temple, and it ends in the temple, but a very different temple. A temple where the sacrifices of the priests are now irrelevant because the perfect and the final sacrifice has been made on the cross. A temple where the curtain protecting the most holy place has been torn in two so that all those who trust in Jesus and his sacrifice can be brought into the glorious presence of God. A temple where the ultimate and final high priest has and will forever raise his hands and open his mouth to pronounce his eternal blessing upon God's people. 
And until that final, final, the final return of Jesus occurs, we do exactly what they have been doing from the very beginning. We gather together with one another to proclaim that promise to one another for the glory of God. And until then, the story continues. The drama continues to unfold. The play isn't over. Kevin Kozlowski, who was my old boss and, and pastor in, um, in Wilmington, he told this story on a few occasions. His, his niece, Julia, was attending one of those church Christmas programs as a, as a young child, you know, one of those dramatic presentations of the life of Jesus. And at the very end of the, of the play, they had the ascension. And so the, uh, the, you know, the, the actor was physically raised. They had like a, you know, a hoist, and they raised him out of sight of the audience, and that was the end of the play. That was the end. And everyone started walking out, and the crew was kind of resetting the stage for the, the next play. They were doing one after the other. And Julia was walking out with her family, and the audience was starting to file in for the next show. And Julia's young girl, was obviously concerned that no one misunderstand the end of the play. And so as the people were coming in, she was telling them, she, she was blurting out, Jesus is coming back. Just so you know, it's not over after this. He's coming, he's coming back. And that's absolutely true story's not over. Curtain hasn't set. And Jesus' ascension is not the end. Our King is in heaven actively working on our behalf. His presence through the Holy Spirit is with us now, empowering and encouraging us in our mission. And He will return in all of His fullness and glory one day to make all things right. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what You have done in Jesus, not just living a perfect life and not just dying and atoning death, but rising from the dead of victorious resurrection and ascending to be seated on your throne. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we celebrate this truth, as we celebrate it in our daily lives, as we live it out, as the fact of us getting it transforms how we interact with our circumstances. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for what Jesus has done. And we come praying in his name. Amen.